Hi everyone. It's the last day of July and welcome to part three of the Baba Yaga series. This has been such a rewarding series for me. I hope you're finding the information and the material very inspiring. I'm sure it's stirring your own psyche and dream life and reflections and meditations. I know that it is because this is such powerful, powerful work. And I hope that it's manna for you. It certainly is for me. I thought today's final installment would be a bit shorter, but that is not looking like the case. As I've been prepping this material, I had to cut some things out. But the good news is, is that will be where we begin in August, although it won't be a continuation of Baba Yaga, it will be another amazing story about a tiger. And I will tell you about that at the end of this episode. But first, let's situate ourselves that tomorrow, being August 1st, there's going to be a full moon. A full moon. It'll be the sturgeon moon. We've talked about that a bit already. But just wishing you the glory of that silver light tonight and tomorrow and the next night. It's so full and beautiful right now. And also, the last day of August will hold a full moon. It's a blue moon month. So we're beginning and ending the month of August with full moons. So that's a lovely occurrence in and of itself. Today, we're talking about the mystical part and even the part of the Baba Yaga story that really doesn't have words. You know, I'm going to do my best (laughs) because we are in deeply, deeply experiential, mystical territory in today's episode. And if you remember my overarching themes, two of them for this whole series, was to honor that we are moving deeply into the feminine And that is very much an experiential practice. You know, our our concepts can only get us so far at some point. We are deep in the experiential aspect of divinity. And that is the overarching theme of our Baba Yaga work together, as well as the certainty, and this is a certainty, that although many incredible guides, many incredible stories can point us in the direction that our souls are taking us and help us get a bit of a lay of the lay of the land, ultimately this deepest work will be between you and your God, you and your authentic self. And it will be uniquely tailored to your own awakening and your own flavor of that, if you will. And that's what today's about, because we've talked about those four levels of consciousness, the first one being the victim consciousness or to me, everything's happening to me. The second one being by me or work ethic, where you have agency, but you are doing it under your own power. So it's very much about strength and perseverance Though the entire psychology movement is housed there, academia is housed there, Um, life coaching programs, workshops, 
all of that is housed there, the books we read and are inspired by. It's a fantastic place. It's a very rich and essential part of the journey, absolutely, because you learn to be a really responsible and good human being there. But those upper two levels of consciousness, the through me and the as me levels, are where you're really integrating with your divinity. And that's what today is about. And we have to leave our concepts behind because, as I said, this is deeply experiential. And and it's going to be unique to you. But I, I wanted to address this topic as a standalone podcast because those four levels of consciousness, and I'll just call them one, two, three, and four, with the three and four being the through me and as me consciousness, it's so important to differentiate what is appropriate at each of these levels of consciousness. And let me just give you an example. Long ago, when I first read Eckhart Tolle, you know, I've read him for many years, but I understand him a lot more now. When I first read him, I remember a quote saying, if if you are in an intolerable situation, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but this is the gist. If you're in an intolerable situation, you have three options. You can change it, you can leave, or you can accept it completely. And that last option being the most powerful, being the most powerful. Okay, I got as much as I could of that at the time, but now this makes sense. Let's layer that on our three and four levels of consciousness, okay? Because at different moments, different things are appropriate, okay? So if you are in victim consciousness and you are in an abusive situation, you know, let's say physical abuse, it is not appropriate to accept that completely, (laughs) That wouldn't, A, be your level of consciousness yet. It wouldn't be in its fullness yet. I mean, certainly you could have a moment of grace. Of course, that can happen at any moment. But your default consciousness would not be in that space. So your options there would likely be to leave that situation, and that would be appropriate for there. Let's move up here. I'm I'm oversimplifying this, but you'll you'll get the point. Then let's say you're in that consciousness of agency, the by me consciousness. And you're getting all your psychology and your self-help and personal growth and all the rest of it. And even the upper levels of that can start to become quite mystical, but it's still tied to concepts. It's not experiential yet. But let's say you're in that space and you've really grown a lot as a human being. You have excellent boundaries, etc., then your option, if in an intolerable situation, might also be to leave it, but it could also be to change it. And that's often what we do there because we communicate and we go to workshops together and we do things with our partners or our children to increase consciousness, you know, to expand it. But it's more in a way of learning and psychology and those sorts of endeavors, okay? So, I mean, all of these options are available at all times, but you'll see that at certain 
marks along the way they are more appropriate or not, okay? In levels three and four, so the through me, the flow state consciousness that we've talked about, and then the as me, you are moving from the I am space as much as one humanly can (laughs) on the earth plane, but you are in the as me, I am consciousness of your inner divinity, of your authenticity, of the self with a capital S. If you are in that space, then you are entering the accept the situation completely and that being the most powerful. And you see again why it's a different kind of appropriateness because you've probably, whether it was transurfing or other disciplines of the mind, you've probably learned at levels three and four to depersonalize, to see what ego thinking is versus authentic self thinking is. Um, You are identifying your shadow elements, etc. And you're learning not to react to the external world. You are endeavoring to affect change from the internal space. That's what we've been talking about. You know, pretty much that is the theme of my podcast (laughs) these days. And so you see why those different choices are available at different times. The reason that is the most powerful to accept it completely is because you are offering non-resistance. And you are saying, this is the illusion space. This is Maya. This is not real my vision, my internal vision, my internal state, my internal frequency is what is real and will be reflected soon in my outer space, in my outer circumstances. That is a distinction that I think is so important to metabolize that at different points along the journey, different options are appropriate. And that brings me to this question that I'm often asked, and I've certainly had dear friends ask me this, and I've had students and clients ask me this, and it's an important question, and this is why I wanted to wrestle with this today. At what point does envisioning the beauty of another person or how your life intersects with theirs, at what point is that a manipulation of their free will? Or you not accepting that you have to release the form? So for example, I was married once prior. And at that point in my life, I was deeply in by me consciousness. You know, I was learning a lot about alcohol abuse. I was learning a lot about psychology, et cetera, et cetera. And I had to leave a situation and educate myself and educate my children in a situation at that time in my life. And of course, I had moments of flow state and moments of divine grace, et cetera, definitely, and was so deeply grateful for that. But largely, I was in the by me consciousness space then, really reading a lot of codependency material, et cetera, et cetera. I had to release the form of my marriage because it could not contain my vision 
And I really didn't know a lot about using the imagination as an actual tool for change at that point in my life. So I released the form because I was really at the edge of my consciousness. But something very radical has happened in the ensuing 10 years. And that is, I feel like I'm moving much more into the three and four category. And I don't say that with any kind of arrogance at all. But I've definitely been in experiential consciousness, experiential awakening, experiential practice. That's what I've been sharing with you. It's the work I've been doing, both personally and professionally. So the rules, quote unquote, change then. And whenever I have struggled in relationship or with an individual, whoever they may be, You know, if I've visited with a friend at the time and and we're just talking about ideas and concepts and experiences in the spiritual realm, oftentimes the suggestion will come up, well, you need to release the form. And that is true. That is true in certain spaces. And what I'm discovering is although we have to come to this in that deeply mystical place that is between you and your God, you and your goddess, you and your authentic self, there is a time in that fourth consciousness, in the I am, in the as me consciousness, where the form is not just about, oh, I need to release that form because you have had a desire for a certain vivification, a certain electrification of consciousness of a certain form and color and texture because it's your heart's desire. Because it's your heart's desire. And as Neville Goddard says, that is because God wants to experience that through the form of you. And oftentimes, that is also bringing in other forms, be it other people or other situations that are also being electrified by that consciousness. In that fourth space of I am as me consciousness, you are merging so deeply with divinity that in that space, it is appropriate to claim a form Not only because it's the heart's desire, which means it's the God blueprint, but also because you are only reaching out as a God to another part of yourself. And I know that sounds really mystical and really paradoxical. And I don't say it glibly because, you know, I'm not saying, oh, I'm in the fourth consciousness state so I can make anybody be who I want them to be. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is as you continue to merge with the I am-ness, by definition, you are becoming God. And, And you know I mean that with great humility. And you're going to be a a very advanced, loving, appropriate, 
giving, ethical person at this at this juncture, somebody who has really integrated your shadow and your triggers, etc. But at this level, you can't claim the I amness without claiming the Godhead, basically, or however you would like to say that, you know, the divinity. And so the awakening that that may spark in somebody else, not for egoic reasons, okay? The ego is so reduced at this point that it's basically just there to allow you to experience the earth plane and to do clerical tasks. You know, the ego is just not an issue at this point. So you wouldn't be claiming a form or a situation or the rebirth of a relationship at this stage, at this level of consciousness for ego reasons. You would not be doing it that for that reason. However, to even be in that fourth consciousness, you are God and you are metabolizing what that means. And your default gravitational center is your authentic self. So the agency of, quote, a God to reach out to another God in another form, that's the dance that's happening there. And so I... I only say this, and it's really hard to even articulate, but this is what I think is happening in the story of the Baba Yaga when the mysterious disembodied hands appear. There can be many things happening there, many mystical things happening, but the Baba Yaga and Vasilisa do not have a conversation about the hands. And that is because the little doll, the intuition in Vasilisa's pocket tells her, no, don't go that far. This is something that you will experience, again, I'm just saying it again and again, between you and your God. You will know the appropriateness of that rising moment in your own awakening when the ego has really reduced to just a whisper. And in that space... I feel like the mystics that I read and study are in agreement with this perspective. And and to that point, I will I will share a quote from Neville Goddard right here about this very thing. You know, early on, Neville Goddard talks about doing revision, and we've talked about that in the past, where you reimagine, you know, events in the day so that you continue to open your mind to new possibilities. Okay. And and we've talked about that in his later work, his work grew more mystical all the time. And I want you to hear this excellent quote that I feel dovetails beautifully with what I've just said. He's quoted as saying, often our most elaborate and original thoughts are determined by another. Often our most elaborate and original thoughts are determined by another. That just gave me chills when I read that because I realized for the first time that guides or sojourners on my walk now who are more at ease more in the space of the I am as me consciousness 
may be greatly influencing my own thinking by proxy to them um, in the imaginal realm. And that is helping me evolve. And so at that level, it is not inappropriate to with love and with consciousness and with, you know, a, a deference to the greater consciousness that knows all the moving pieces. I'm not saying that my particular window into a situation or an individual would have all of their answers, not at all, but my goodwill for their their blossoming as a as a human is mattering at that level. And you could argue it's it's mattering at all the levels because in the words of Ram Das, we're all walking each other home. But to even dwell in that fourth level of consciousness, to even dwell there, you are experiencing metabolizing your divinity. And so you don't then just throw up your hands and say, well, I got to release the form because God wouldn't do that. So it's this huge paradox right there. And I wanted to touch on that in terms of our story because you can't just sort of say that glibly and and then have that be misinterpreted or misconstrued because there's so much responsibility and appropriateness required and yet to be in that fourth arena of consciousness, you can't deny your divinity. So today we're going to talk more about that. And all I knew to do in regards to that is to talk about the heart. And that's going to be our poem for today is one that's richly in the heart zone because the heart is a beautiful default area of intelligence and wisdom to drop into when we need to get out of our logical thinking, our rational thinking, the heart is going to be a more reliable center of wisdom. So that, and then also I just want to share some mystical writing, some mystical writing that will allow us to experience that fourth realm of consciousness and sort of be in the environment of what it sounds and feels like. Because if we are in its presence, then we know that is where we would be akin to experiencing ourselves as we answer some of these deep questions about at which level are certain actions appropriate or not. So that is my best attempt <laughs> at, at sort of making that clear and ethical. And, and that's how I can address that at this moment. So in the Baba Yaga story, you know, as we sort of wind that down, I'll, I'll read a few passages. Again, I'm going to pull from Clarissa Pencolistes' work to just sort of bring that to a close there about the the magical hands because she speaks a little bit about it but not a lot you know because this is 
deeply experiential, again, between you and your divinity. But then we'll move into the work with the heart and, and the beautiful poem I have for that, and then end with some mystical writing. That's the landscape for today. So with that, I'm reading now from Clarissa Pinkola's D's text, Women Who Run With the Wolves, about the Baba Yaga. When the Yaga says, to know too much can make one too old too soon. There is a certain amount we all should know at each age and each stage of our lives. In the tale, to know the meaning of the hands that appear and wring out the oil from the corn and the poppy seed, both life-giving and death-dealing medicines in and of themselves, is to ask to know too much. Vasilisa asks about the horses, but not about the hands. When I was a young adult, I asked my friend Bogana Rubanovich, an elderly teller from the Caucasus, who lived in a tiny Russian farm community in Minnesota, about the Baba Yaga. How did she see this part of the tale where Vasilisa just knows to stop asking questions? She looked at me with the lashless eyes of an old dog and said, There are simply things which cannot be known. She smiled bewitchingly, crossed her thick ankles, and that was that. To try to understand the mystery of the appearing and disappearing servants who come in the form of disembodied hands is akin to trying to absolutely comprehend the core of the numinosum. By warning Vasilisa away from the question, the doll and the yaga caution Vasilisa about calling upon too much of the numinosity of the underworld all at once. And this is right and proper. For though we visit there, we do not want to become enraptured and thereby trapped there. It is another set of cycles the yaga alludes to here, cycles of a woman's life, As a woman lives them, she will understand more and more of these interior feminine rhythms, among them the rhythms of creativity, of birthing psychic babies, and perhaps also human ones, the rhythms of solitude, of play, of rest, of sexuality, and of the hunt. One need not push it. The understanding will come. Some things must be accepted as being out of our reach, even though they act upon us, and we are enriched by them. There is a saying in my family, some things are God's business. And even in that fourth arena of consciousness, we may have a vision that we know is inspired by the Godhead, and we may have shifted in our default position to primarily the I am space, which is absolutely a crowning achievement of consciousness. And even so, I'm not suggesting that even in that numinous space, you will know all the details of an external situation or person or their attending circumstances or whatever, but holding a vision for their awakening and their blossoming and their heart space intelligence. That is something we would do for anybody. And even so, the details are going to be released, absolutely surrendered 
to the greater Godhead that knows all those details that we possibly couldn't on on this side of of life death right so there still remains a very healthy amount of surrender required in that space but i have come to understand that quote unquote releasing the form in earlier stages is absolutely appropriate and i'm understanding now that holding the space of a form to blossom is more appropriate at this fourth level of consciousness because we are all, in Ram Dass's words, walking each other home. And thoughts that I have going off in my head, according to Neville Goddard, may be from somebody else holding that beautiful space for me. And so this is deeply mystical. This is deeply um, paradoxical. It takes great reverence and great humility, all of that. But I am clear, 100% clear, that, quote-unquote, the rules at the different levels apply in different ways for, for reasons I've hopefully stated with some clarity. So that I want to share. And and again, where we, where we move to... <laughs> Um, when we don't know how to think about these things or articulate them is we move into the heart. That is the, re- the reliable place. That is the reliable place to gather wisdom, move from wisdom, calm and soothe ourselves, etc. And And with that, I would just love to share this passage from a poetry handbook by Mary Oliver, The Incomparable. Mary Oliver, and she writes, Poetry is a life-cherishing force, for poems are not words after all, but fires for the cold, ropes let down to the lost, something as necessary as bread in the pockets of the hungry. Yes, indeed. And with that beautiful passage, then, I want to move to her West Wind number 2, And this is about activating the heart space. And it is not for the faint of heart, okay? This takes courage, but moving through these levels of consciousness takes courage too. So, and it's a courage that we all know is our birthright. So it's really a courage that is always there and it's allowing the fear to just continue to drop away. So it's it's a courage that belongs to us all. And our intention is to keep experiencing more of our own agency and certainty about the unknown and and how trustworthy it is. So with Mary Oliver as our guide, you are young, so you know everything. You leap into the boat and begin rowing, but listen to me. Without fanfare, without embarrassment, without any doubt, I talk directly to your soul. Listen to me. Lift the oars from the water. Let your arms rest and your heart and heart's little intelligence and listen to me. There is life without love. 
It is not worth a bent penny or a scuffed shoe. It is not worth the body of a dead dog nine days unburied. When you hear, a mile away and still out of sight, the churn of the water as it begins to swirl and roil, fretting around the sharp rocks, when you hear that unmistakable pounding, when you feel the mist on your mouth and sense ahead the embattlement, the long falls plunging and steaming, then row, row for your life toward it. Row for your life toward it. That just takes my breath away. It will strip you, love, of everything only to deliver you to yourself. And that is the wisdom that we court and relax into increasingly. And that is the wisdom that is guiding us on in this, in this process of awakening. So now I want to share sort of the atmosphere of some mystical writing because I think it's the best way other than experiencing it yourself for invoking the landscape, if you will, of that fourth level of consciousness, the I am space, the as me space. And how I came to this particular passage that I want to share with you today is I had gone to the film Oppenheimer about a week ago. And, you know, it's definitely a buzz right now in the culture in the U.S. And it's an excellent film. It's very well done. It's it's done by Christopher Nolan as the director and I love his work. And that film, of course, is about the father of the atomic bomb, Robert Oppenheimer, and the scientists working at that time during World War II on the technology and the quantum physics of that Manhattan Project. But what was intriguing to me was I wanted to see how the quantum physics was going to be discussed because although I know nothing about it, okay, other than just an instinctual hunger to experience the wonders of it, you know, I'm not, I'm not science-based in that way. And so I don't even pretend to be, but I wanted to be sort of wowed by that. And, and there are beautiful scenes in that film where it's showing how Oppenheimer's mind worked you know, as he was contemplating quantum physics. And that's the part I enjoyed the very most about the film. Because, of course, it raises all kinds of, of very difficult questions and etc. But the quantum nature of it was deeply inspiring to me. And I read a bit about his life and read, just like I have encountered with many scientists, that... The, the deeper they went in to, you know, this astonishing math or whatever field they were in, so many of them, countless examples, had a mystical nature to their lives, either, you know, surprisingly 
blossom or they would start a correspondence with somebody that may be more learned in the mystical philosophies, etc. Like, for example, Wolfgang Pauli and C.G. Jung had famous correspondence because Pauli was working on all this incredible math and, and physics. And, of course, Jung was deep into depth psychology, and they had incredible correspondence and interaction with each other. In fact, Jung took Pauli on as a patient for a while, and they definitely went into the dream life and talked about aspects like synchronicity and what was going on there from a psychological standpoint, as well as a sort of quantum mathematical standpoint. And I just find that all so inspiring. And that also happened with Oppenheimer. He became very interested in Eastern mystical texts. And that became an important part of his thinking, as well as the science he was working on. And I find that so intriguing. And then that led to another tangent, which just ended up coming full circle, in my estimation, really beautifully, in that I, I, I followed a thread that said one of the only books that Steve Jobs downloaded on his own iPad was The Autobiography of a Yogi. And I had heard that title, but I was not familiar with it. And it once again is the account of mystical traditions from the East. There's Western and Eastern mystical traditions in Autobiography of a Yogi. But I downloaded that. It's widely available online. It's in the public domain now. And so you can absolutely download it yourself and and experience it and, and see if it has anything to offer you at at this juncture. Autobiography of a Yogi is an autobiography of Paramahansa Yogananda, and it was published in 1946. And this I'm reading from Wikipedia. It says, the book is an introduction to the methods of attaining God realization and the spiritual wisdom of the East, which had only been available to a few before 1946. So we're talking about the same period of time where Oppenheimer was reading Eastern texts and then this text became available. And I want to read straight from chapter 30, which is called The Law of Miracles. And you'll see some Oppenheimer references in here, at least about atomic theory. And I think this chapter speaks beautifully about the landscape of that fourth area of consciousness where this discovery will be between you and your divine nature. But the language of this chapter 30, in my estimation, is so very helpful when combined with the heart space of being a reliable navigational tool for how to affect change and how to continue to blossom into your fullness. So with that, I am reading chapter 30 from Autobiography of a Yogi.
by Paramahansa Yogananda, if this is a new text to you. And again, totally available in the public domain. The Law of Miracles The great novelist Leo Tolstoy wrote a delightful story, The Three Hermits. His friend, Nicholas Rorick, has summarized the tale as follows. On an island there lived three old hermits. They were so simple that the only prayer they used was, We are three, thou art three, have mercy on us. Great miracles were manifested during this naive prayer. The local bishop came to hear about the three hermits and their inadmissible prayer and decided to visit them in order to teach them the canonical invocations. He arrived on the island, told the hermits that their heavenly petition was undignified and taught them many of the customary prayers. The bishop then left on a boat. He saw, following the ship, a radiant light. As it approached, he discerned the three hermits, who were holding hands and running upon the waves in an effort to overtake the vessel. "'We have forgotten the prayers you taught us,' they cried as they reached the bishop, "'and have hastened to ask you to repeat them.' The odd bishop shook his head. "'Dear ones,' he replied humbly, "'continue to live with your old prayer.' How did the three saints walk on the water? How did Christ resurrect his crucified body? How did Lahiri Mahasaya and Sri Yukteswar perform their miracles? Modern science has as yet no answer, though with the advent of the atomic bomb, there's the reference to Oppenheimer, and the wonders of radar, the scope of the world mind has been abruptly enlarged. The word impossible is becoming less prominent in the scientific vocabulary. The ancient Vedic scriptures declare that the physical world operates under one fundamental law of Maya, the principle of relativity and duality. God, the sole life, is an absolute unity. He cannot appear as the separate and diverse manifestations of a creation except under a false or unreal veil. That cosmic illusion is Maya. Every great scientific discovery of modern times has served as a confirmation of this simple pronouncement of the Rishis. Newton's law of motion is a law of Maya. Quote, to every action there is always an equal and contrary reaction. The mutual actions of any two bodies are always equal and oppositely directed. Action and reaction are thus exactly equal. To have a single force is impossible. There must be and always is a pair of forces equal and opposite. Fundamental natural activities all betray their Mayak origin. Electricity, for example, is a phenomenon of repulsion and attraction. Its electrons and protons are electrical opposites. Another example, the atom or final particle of matter is, like the earth itself, a magnet with positive and negative poles. The entire phenomenal world is under the inexorable sway of polarity. No law of physics, chemistry, or any other science is ever found free from inherent opposite or contrasted principles. Physical science, then, cannot formulate laws outside of Maya, the very texture and structure of creation. Nature herself is Maya. Natural science must perforce deal with her ineluctable quiddity. In her own domain, she is eternal and exhaustible. Future scientists can do no more than probe one aspect after another of her varied infinitude. Science thus remains in a perpetual flux, unable to reach finality. 
fit indeed to formulate the laws of an already existing and functioning cosmos, but powerless to detect the law framer and soul operator. The majestic manifestations of gravitation and electricity have become known, but what gravitation and electricity are, no mortal knoweth. To surmount Maya was the task assigned to the human race by the millennial prophets. To rise above the duality of creation and perceive the unity of the creator was conceived of as man's highest goal. Those who cling to the cosmic illusion must accept its essential law of polarity, flow and ebb, rise and fall, day and night, pleasure and pain, good and evil, birth and death. This cyclic pattern assumes a certain anguishing monotony. After man has gone through a few thousand human births, he begins to cast a hopeful eye beyond the compulsions of Maya. To tear the veil of Maya is to pierce the secret of creation. The yogi who thus denudes the universe is the only true monotheist. All others are worshiping heathen images. So long as man remains subject to the dualistic delusions of nature, the Janus-faced Maya is his goddess. He cannot know the one true God. The word illusion, maya, is individually called avidya, literally not knowledge. Ignorance, delusion, maya or avidya can never be destroyed through intellectual conviction or analysis, but solely through attaining the interior state of nirbakalpa samadhi. The Old Testament prophets and seers of all lands and ages spoke from that state of consciousness. Ezekiel says, quote, Afterwards he brought me to the gate, even the gate that looketh toward the east, and behold, the glory of God of Israel came from the way of the east, and his voice was like a noise of many waters, and the earth shined with his glory. Through the divine eye in the forehead, east, the yogi sails his consciousness into omnipresence, hearing the word, or om, divine sound of many waters or vibrations, which is the sole reality of creation." Among the trillion mysteries of the cosmos, the most phenomenal is light. Unlike sound waves, whose transmission requires air or other material media, light waves pass freely through the vacuum of interstellar space. Even the hypothetical ether, held as the interplanetary medium of light in the undulatory theory, can be discarded on the Einsteinian grounds that the geometrical properties of space render the theory of ether unnecessary. Under either hypothesis, light remains the most subtle, the freest from material dependence of any natural manifestation. In the gigantic conceptions of Einstein, the velocity of light, 186,000 miles per second, dominates the whole theory of relativity. He proves mathematically that the velocity of light is, so far as man's finite mind is concerned, the only constant in a universe of unstable flux. On the sole absolute of light velocity depend all human standards of time and space. Not abstractly eternal as hitherto considered, time and space are relative and finite factors, deriving their measurement validity only in reference to the yardstick of light velocity. In joining space as a dimensional relativity, time has surrendered age-old claims to a changeless value. Time is now stripped to its rightful nature, a simple essence of ambiguity, with a few equational strokes of his pen, Einstein has banished from the cosmos every fixed relativity except that of light. In a later development, his unified field theory, the great physicist embodies in one mathematical formula the laws of gravitation and of electromagnetism. 
Reducing the cosmical structure to variations on a single law, Einstein reaches across the ages to the Rishis, who proclaimed a soul texture of creation, that of protean Maya. On the apocal theory of relativity have arisen the mathematical possibilities of exploring the ultimate atom. Great scientists are now boldly asserting not only that the atom is energy rather than matter, but that atomic energy is essentially mind stuff. That is so incredible. I know that's a little bit, you know, theoretical, that part of it, and, and the rest of the chapter won't be quite as much. But to to say and and conclude that that is mind stuff, I mean, it's just incredible, again, where the mystics and science are colliding. Moving on through the text The frank realization that physical science is concerned with a world of shadows is one of the most significant advances, said Sir Anthony Stanley Eddington, writing in The Nature of the Physical World. In the world of physics, we watch a shadowgraph performance of the drama of familiar life. The shadow of my elbow rests on the shadow table of the shadow ink flowing over the shadow paper. It is all symbolic, and as a symbol, the physicist leaves it. Then comes the alchemist's mind, who transmutes the symbols. To put the conclusion crudely, the stuff of the world is mind stuff. The realistic matter and fields of force of former physical theory are altogether irrelevant, except insofar as the mind stuff has itself spun these imaginings. The external world has thus become a world of shadows. In removing our illusions, we have removed the substance, for indeed we have seen that substance is one of the greatest of our illusions. With the recent discovery of the electron microscope came definite proof of the light essence of atoms and of the inescapable duality of nature. The New York Times gave the following report of a 1937 demonstration of the electron microscope before a meeting of the American Association of the Advancement of Science. The crystalline structure of tungsten, hitherto known only indirectly by means of x-rays, stood outlined boldly on a fluorescent screen, showing nine atoms in their correct positions in the space lattice, a cube with one atom in each corner and one in the center. The atoms in the crystal lattice of the tungsten appeared on the fluorescent screen as points of light, arranged in geometric pattern. Against this crystal cube of light, the bombarding molecules of air could be observed as dancing points of light, similar to points of sunlight shimmering on moving waters. Quote, the principle of the electron microscope was first discovered in 1927 by Drs. Clinton J. Davison and Lester H. Germer of the Bell Telephone Laboratories, New York City, who found that the electron had a dual personality partaking of the characteristic of both a particle and a wave. The wave quality gave the electron the characteristic of light, and a search was begun to devise means for focusing electrons in a manner similar to the focusing of light by means of a lens. For his discovery of the Jekyll-Hyde quality of the electron, which corroborated the prediction made in 1924 by de Broglie, French Nobel Prize winner physicist, and showed that the entire realm of physical nature had a dual personality, Dr. Davison also received the Nobel Prize in physics. The stream of knowledge, Sir James Jeans writes in The Mysterious Universe, is heading towards a non-mechanical reality. 
the universe begins to look more like a great thought than like a great machine. 20th century science is thus sounding like a page from the hoary Vedas. From science, then, if it must be so, let man learn the philosophic truth that there is no material universe. Its warp and woof is maya, illusion. Its mirages of reality all break down under analysis. As one by one the reassuring props of a physical cosmos crash beneath him, man dimly perceives his idolatrous reliance, his past transgression of the divine command, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. In his famous equation outlining the equivalence of mass and energy, Einstein proved that the energy in any particle of matter is equal to its mass or weight multiplied by the square of the velocity of light. The release of the atomic energies is brought about through the annihilation of the material particles. The death of matter has been the birth of an atomic age. Light velocity is a mathematical standard or constant, not because there is an absolute value in 186,000 miles per second, but because no material body whose mass increases with its velocity can ever attain the velocity of light. Stated another way, only a material body whose mass is infinite could equal the velocity of light. This conception brings us to the law of miracles. Here we go. The masters who are able to materialize and dematerialize their bodies or any other object and to move with the velocity of light and to utilize the creative light rays in bringing into instant visibility any physical manifestation have fulfilled the necessary Einsteinian condition. Their mass is infinite. The consciousness of a perfected yogi is effortlessly identified, not with a narrow body, but with the universal structure. Gravitation, whether the force of Newton or the Einsteinian manifestation of inertia, is powerless to compel a master to exhibit the property of weight, which is the distinguishing gravitational condition of all material objects. He who knows himself as the omnipresent spirit is subject no longer to the rigidities of a body in time and space. Oh my God. I mean, whoa. Are we talking about the fourth level here? Their imprisoning rings past not have yielded to the solvent. I am he. Wow. That, I like, whoa. Fiat lux and there was light. God's first command to his ordered creation in Genesis 1-3 brought into being the only atomic reality, light. On the beams of this immaterial medium occur all divine manifestations. Devotees of every age testify to the appearance of God as flame and light, the King of kings and Lord of lords who only hath immortality dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto a yogi who, through perfect meditation, has merged his consciousness with the Creator, perceives the cosmical essence as light. To him, there is no difference between the light rays composing water and the light rays composing land. Free from matter consciousness, free from the three dimensions of space and the fourth dimension of time, a master transfers his body of light with equal ease over the light rays of earth, water, fire, or air. Long concentration on the liberating spiritual eye has enabled the yogi to destroy all delusions concerning matter and its gravitational weight. 
Thenceforth, he sees the universe as an essentially undifferentiated mass of light. Optical images, Dr. T.L. Trolland of Harvard tells us, are built up on the same principle as the ordinary half-tone engravings. That is, they are made up of minute dottings or striplings far too small to be detected by the eye. The sensitiveness of the retina is so great that a visual sensation can be produced by relatively few quanta of the right kind of light. Through a master's divine knowledge of light phenomena, he can instantly project into perceivable manifestation the ubiquitous light atoms. The actual form of the projection, whether it be a tree, a medicine, a human body, is in conformance with a yogi's powers of will and of visualization. In man's dream consciousness, where he has loosened in sleep his clutch on the egoistic limitations that daily hem him round, the omnipotence of his mind has a nightly demonstration. Lo, there in the dream stand the long-dead friends, the remotest continents, the resurrected senses of his childhood, with that free and unconditioned consciousness known to all men in the phenomena of dreams the God-tuned master has forged a never-severed link. Innocent of all personal motives and employing the creative will bestowed on him by the creator, a yogi rearranges the light atoms of the universe to satisfy any sincere prayer of a devotee. For this purpose were man and creation made, that he should rise up as a master of maya, knowing his dominion over the cosmos. And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. I'm just blown away reading this. I've read it, but like, I'm just, (laughs) I'm experiencing this right along with you. I mean... The import of this makes the discipline of doing your transurfing and being emotionally centered just like nothing compared to realizing what that fourth level of consciousness is about, who we are, who we are. I I just like this blows me away in real time here, which is not a thing. (laughs) Real time. What is that? Um, I mean, this is so joyful. This is so joyful to me because it can be a long, a long journey here sometimes. Reading on. In 1915, shortly after I had entered the Swami order, I witnessed a vision of violent contrasts. In it, the relativity of human consciousness was vividly established. I clearly perceived the unity of the eternal light behind the painful dualities of Maya. The vision descended on me as I sat one morning in my little attic room in Father's Gopar Road home. For months, World War I had been raging in Europe. I reflected sadly on the vast toll of death as I closed my eyes in meditation My consciousness was suddenly transferred to the body of a captain in command of a battleship. The thunder of guns split the air as shots were exchanged between shore batteries and the ship's cannons. A huge shell hit the powder magazine and tore my ship asunder. I jumped into the water together with a few sailors who had survived the explosion. 
Heart pounding, I reached the shore safely, but alas, a stray bullet ended its furious flight in my chest. I fell groaning to the ground. My whole body was paralyzed, yet I was aware of possessing it as one is conscious of a lake gone to sleep. At last, the mysterious footstep of death has caught up with me, I thought. With a final sigh, I was about to sink into unconsciousness when, lo, I found myself seated in the lotus position in the Gurpar Road room. Hysterical tears poured forth as I joyfully stroked and pinched my regained possession, a body free from any bullet hole in the breast. I rocked to and fro, inhaling and exhaling to assure myself that I was alive. Amidst these self-congratulations, again I found my consciousness transferred to the captain's dead body by the gory shore. Utter confusion of mind came upon me. Lord, I prayed, am I dead or alive? A dazzling play of light filled the whole horizon. A soft, rumbling vibration formed itself into words. What has life or death to do with light? In the image of my light, I have made you. The relativities of life and death belong to the cosmic dream. Behold your dreamless being. Awake, my child, awake. As steps in man's awakening, the Lord inspires scientists to discover, at the right time and place, the secrets of his creation. Many modern discoveries help men to apprehend the cosmos as a varied expression of one power light guided by divine intelligence. The wonders of the motion picture, of radio, of television, of radar, of the photoelectric cell, the all-seeing electric eye of atomic energies are all based on the electromagnetic phenomenon of light. The motion picture art can portray any miracle. From the impressive visual standpoint, no marvel is barred to trick photography. A man's transparent astral body can be seen rising from his gross physical form. He can walk on the water, resurrect the dead, reverse the natural sequence of developments, and play havoc with time and space. Assembling the light images as he pleases, the photographer achieves optical wonders, which a true master produces with actual light rays. The lifelike images of the motion picture illustrate many truths concerning creation. The cosmic director has written his own plays and assembled the tremendous cast from the pageant of the centuries. From the dark booth of eternity, he pours his creative beam through the films of successive ages, and the pictures are thrown on the screen of space. Just as the motion picture images appear to be real, but are only combinations of light and shade. So is the universal variety a delusive seeming. The planetary spheres with their countless forms of life are not but figures in a cosmic motion picture, temporarily true to five sense perceptions as the senses are cast on the screen of man's consciousness by the infinite creative beam. A cinema audience can look up and see all screen images are appearing through the instrumentality of one imageless beam of light. The colorful universal drama is similarly issuing from the single white light of a cosmic source. With inconceivable ingenuity, God is staging an entertainment for his human children, making them actors as well as audience in his planetary theater. One day, I entered a motion picture house to view a newsreel of the European battlefields. World War I was still being waged in the West. The newsreel recorded the carnage with such realism that I left the theater with a troubled heart. 
Lord, I prayed, why dost thou permit such suffering? To my intense surprise, an instant answer came in the form of a vision of the actual European battlefields. The horror of the struggle, filled with the dead and dying, far surpassed in ferocity any representation of the newsreel. Look intently, a gentle voice spoke in my inner consciousness. You will see that these scenes now, being enacted in France, are nothing but a play of chiascaro. They are the cosmic motion picture, as real and as unreal as the theater newsreel. You have just seen a play within a play. My heart was still not comforted. The divine voice went on. Creation is light and shadow both, else no picture is possible. The good and evil of Maya must ever alternate in supremacy. If joy were ceaseless here in this world, would man ever seek another? Without suffering, he scarcely cares to recall that he has forsaken his eternal home. Pain is a prod to remembrance. The way of escape is through wisdom. The tragedy of death is unreal. Those who shudder at shudder at it are like ignorant actors who die of fright on the stage when nothing more is fired at them than a blank cartridge. My sons are the children of light. They will not sleep forever in delusion. Although I had read scriptural accounts of Maya, they had not given me the deep insight that came with the personal visions and their accompanying words of consolation. One's values are profoundly changed when he is finally convinced that creation is only a vast motion picture, and that not in it, but beyond it, lies his own reality. As I finished writing this chapter, I sat on my bed in the lotus posture. My room was dimly lit by two shaded lamps. Lifting my gaze, I noticed that the ceiling was dotted with small mustard-colored lights, scintillating and quivering with a radium-like luster. Myriads of penciled rays like sheets of rain gathered into a transparent shaft and poured silently upon me. At once, my physical body lost its grossness and became metamorphosed into astral texture. I felt a floating sensation as, barely touching the bed, the weightless body shifted slightly and alternately to left and right. I looked around the room. The furniture and walls were as usual, but the little mass of light had so multiplied that the ceiling was invisible. I was wonderstruck. This is the cosmic motion picture mechanism. A voice spoke as though from within the light, shedding its beam on the whole screen of your bed sheets. It is producing the picture of your body. Behold, your form is nothing but light. I gazed at my arms and moved them back and forth, yet could not feel their weight. An ecstatic joy overwhelmed me. This cosmic stem of light blossoming as my body seemed a divine replica of the light beams streaming out of the projection booth in a cinema house and manifesting as pictures on the screen. For a long time, I experienced this motion picture of my body in the dimly lighted theater of my own bedroom. Despite the many visions I have had, none was ever more singular. As my illusion of a solid body was completely dissipated and my realization deepened that the essence of all object is light. I looked up to the throbbing stream of lifetrons and spoke entreatingly, Divine light, please withdraw this, my humble body picture, into thyself, even as Elijah was drawn up to heaven by a flame. This prayer was evidently startling. The beam disappeared. My body resumed its normal weight and sank on the bed. The swarm of dazzling ceiling lights flickered and vanished. 
my time to leave this earth had apparently not arrived. Besides, I thought philosophically, the prophet Elijah might well be displeased at my presumption. <sighs> wow. The significance of that is, is so touching to me because I know you'll remember back, I am forgetting the exact podcast, um, the name of it at the moment, but I remember sharing the experience I had when I was driving through Kentucky and it wasn't this specific to the dance of light and, and the quality of light, but I remember having that moment Terry, it was about a two-hour window of time where I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, I just felt absolute joy in every cell of my body because I knew nothing horrible. You know, the rapes, the tortures, the, you know, annihilation of humans, of, you know, the terrible atrocities, you know, harm to children. It just the worst things you can possibly think of. I knew they hadn't ever really happened. And that's a hard thing to say to people. They think you've lost your freaking mind. But I felt the joy of that. And I also knew that death was an illusion as well. And so to read this and, and see the mirror of that, you know, again, I didn't have sort of the, the conceptual piece about light. Um, but the the idea is the same. And it's so humbling and touching. And it is so absolutely real that the I am consciousness, the as me consciousness can be whatever you want it to be. Because this is the dance of light and shadow. And what allows us to believe in that is quieting the mind and not being distracted by what's going on externally, not letting that trigger us emotionally so that we can envision and enjoy what images we would choose to see, knowing our home is 100% secure, knowing everybody's home is 100% secure, and seeing this quality of any situation or any person you meet, seeing this true essence of them is the most incredible gift to offer anybody. So read this. If it is moving you, I will be <laughs> rereading this. Thank you so much for being here with me today. And what we will touch on the next time in August um, because this concludes the Baba Yaga and the mystery, the deep mystery um, of those disembodied hands. What we will discuss next time is another chapter that I want to share with you about a tiger tamer from Autobiography of a Yogi. It's, a, it's an incredible story. And thanks for for listening and for being present as my audience. And until next time, take good care.
Hi, everyone. If you're enjoying this podcast, remember to hit subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And if my work is nourishing your heart and imagination, consider supporting the Apothecary podcast. Just follow the links to make a contribution. And for the full scope of my projects and offerings, including my weekly newsletter, visit lorigreen.net.